Welcome to the School of Wellbeing podcast. I am your host, Meg Durham, wellbeing speaker, educator, and coach. I have taught and worked in schools across metropolitan and regional Australia, and I am dedicated to supporting big-hearted educators to prioritise their wellbeing and take courageous action despite the everyday pressures of school life. Because I want educators to know, you don't have to sacrifice your health, relationships, and happiness to be a great teacher. Together, we are going to learn the lessons to help us teach well and be well. Let the learning begin. Hello and welcome back to the show. I'm Meg Durham and I'm delighted that you're listening today. If you're ready for change this term, join me for this round of Energy by Design. Energy by Design is a four-week circuit breaker experience for busy and big-hearted educators that are ready for more energy, clarity and confidence. It is a game-changing experience and I have created it just for you. See the show notes for more details. What helps you to remain buoyant when life feels like it's pulling you under? Today's guest, the warm and wise Dr. Denise Quinlan, is going to share her extensive knowledge in the area of wellbeing and resilience. Denise is the co-founder of the New Zealand Institute of Wellbeing and Resilience, creator of programs focused on resilience, wellbeing and coping with loss. Denise has worked with thousands of businesses and educational professionals throughout New Zealand and the world and is a regular presenter at national and international wellbeing conferences. Denise's research is published in international, academic journals, and edited volumes. Denise's award-winning podcast, Bringing Wellbeing to Life, includes a series dedicated to coping with loss and features leading researchers and practitioners from all around the world. In this conversation, we discuss getting clear on your vision for the future, the benefits of ruthless prioritisation, why collective resilience matters, and so much more. I hope you'll enjoy my conversation with Dr. Denise Quinlan. Denise, welcome to the School of Wellbeing podcast. I'm delighted to be here. Thank you. Today we're going to be talking about practical ways educators can remain buoyant in the chaos of school life. Why do you think this is an important topic for us all to ponder? Well, We're facing a lot of challenge, and that's unlikely to change in the near future. It's actually likely to continue over the next couple of years. And we've had a really difficult three years. So we need to be able to look after ourselves and keep going. And buoyant is an interesting one because one of the things we've just been talking about is I don't think of resilience as bounce back because we don't always feel bouncy. We don't always feel buoyant. We sink like stones sometimes. I'll come to that in a second. So resilience is also crawling forward on your hands and knees. My favorite quote about resilience probably comes from Professor Karen Rivich from the University of Pennsylvania, who developed the Penn Resilience Program with colleagues like Jane Gillam and Martin Seligman. And Karen says, there are no style points for resilience. So it's about muddling through in whatever way you can. And it's not about bouncing back. It's about bouncing. It's not, it's about someone's crawling forward. We never go back to where we were. The good news is that we do through challenge and adversity, we build knowledge and insight about ourselves and the world and we learn. So we move, we're always moving forward. Myself, I work with Lucy Hone and some years ago, the metaphor that I I came up with to describe us was the difference between people. 
if we think of us as all in the sea, Lucy is one of those people that was born with a buoyancy vest. She bounces. She's like a cork. You push her under and she'll shoot back up. I'm one of the people who was born with a Celtic diver's weight belt around them. Okay. I sink much more easily and it's harder for me to come back to the surface. Some people are naturally buoyant. Some people aren't. It doesn't matter. We all can learn the skills of resilience and looking after ourselves. And why do we all need the skills? Well, Lucy, naturally a very buoyant person, but when tragedy struck her family and her beautiful 12-year-old daughter was killed in an accident, she was handed a massive weight belt. And so the skills of, of resilience were really important to her then. They are always important to me. And I think of them as being like a giant pair of flippers that I can put on to help me get back to and stay on the surface. And our resilient skills are a bit like flippers in that you've got to put them on and use them. So like I know that I know among the things that work for me are regular meditation, exercise, getting out and getting my feet on the earth and remembering I belong to a planet and being in touch with the people who love me. When I'm at my most miserable, I don't always do those things. And I literally need reminders around the place to go, why have you stopped doing the things that work for you? It's like, get your flippers on. I love that idea of really noticing that as we come into the world, we have these different levels, these different temperaments. Some people are more buoyant. Some people feel it's just a little bit harder. But then also identifying that life weighs us down at times. There are times where we have to kick so hard just to keep our head above water. And other times it's quite easy and you can look around and different life stages. When you're juggling school and young children, it feels like you really need to know how to put those flippers on because if you don't, it's easy just to go under. Yeah. And we think about like, I think the time when parents are both working and having small children really demanding and challenging time or being the sandwich generation who are looking after teenagers and have parents who are getting older and needing more support. You know, yeah, it's that there will be challenging times and that's without additional adversity or challenge like earthquake, floods, cyclones, fires or family illness or tragedy. And it constantly keeps coming. I often say that, you know, life just keeps lifing. When does it take a pause? It just keeps coming. And the roller coaster keeps coming. And so as we're thinking about this analogy of being buoyant, putting our flippers on, doing the work, taking the action, what is it that gets us to put these flippers on? How do we even know that we need to do things differently? To be able to look after your own well-being over a lifetime requires us to develop self-awareness because if you don't know what you're doing, you can't change it. We need self-awareness. We need self-regulation because once I've noticed what I'm doing, I need that self-discipline and commitment to make myself make the changes. And then we need a healthy dose of self-compassion because it will screw up. We will not get it right all the time. So for me, those core ingredients, self-awareness, self-regulation, self-compassion, cycling round and round. And I think for a lot of people, though, what makes them know they need to look after their well-being? Some people are great at it. 
But the truth is, in the work that I have done over years and years, the people that I see that are really diligent, assiduous, and committed to looking after their own well-being are people who've had a problem. They've hit depression or they've hit burnout and they're like, I'm not going back there again. So for most of us, big call to action to look after our well-being is when we lose it. And I think the COVID years really highlighted that. You know, we had earlier learnings here in New Zealand where after the Christchurch earthquakes of 2011 and beyond, there was a big awareness that well-being was precious and it wasn't just a natural given. We tend to take well-being for granted until life becomes challenging. And then we go, oh, whoa, that thing that was happening automatically, I now have to do it deliberately. And that's something that I've learned from my journey that there was a time where it did come easily and naturally. There was a time where weekends meant time to myself and school holidays meant time to myself to recharge and recalibrate. I sometimes grieve for summer holidays where it was just me and I could just think about what exercise am I going to do? Who am I going to catch up with? Who am I going to eat with today? And that's all I had to think about. And I would come back to school bouncing because I had so much energy because I had such a good break. That's no longer my reality. My reality is very different. Having to adjust and getting to this point in my life where it's gone from, well, it's kind of good to do it. It makes me feel good to know it really is the difference between the way that I react the way that I'm in relationship, the way that I can manage the world and even think. And I think when we reach that point, we also make the change of realizing that well-being isn't selfish, that self-care is not selfish. Self-care is what enables you to be better in relationship, as you said, to give your best at work, give back to your community. Unless we're doing, unless we're looking after our own well-being, all of that goes when we're miserable. So back to the flippers idea, what are some different strategies that we can use? So what are some different flippers that we can try on and see if they work for us? Let's come back to that big picture of you and me with our flippers on in the sea. The sea is the system. And so in a little bit, let's talk about the system because that is massive. We know that burnout is an individual response to a systemic problem. And we're not going to solve our epidemic of burnout unless we address the system. So let's come to that. So, you know, the first thing is being aware that you're not crazy. If you are in a system that's burning you out, it's going, we're currently overloaded. What are the big drivers? What can I do something about? What can, and and then what do I need to do with my, my people, my team, my system? The big signs of burnout are exhaustion, cynicism, and ineffectiveness. When you are cynical about everybody, and especially yourself, you're cynical about your own ability to make change or look after yourself, and then feeling really ineffective that you can't do anything, and realizing that something that you would have quipped out in 15 minutes feels like climbing a mountain and takes you several hours, they're all really good indicators that we are perhaps moving beyond crispy around the edges. We have a scale that goes from golden through crispy around the edges and ends up at setting off smoke alarms. And if you are setting off smoke alarms, we need to get you out of here and to, to a quiet place to lie down and recover. But as an individual, what do we need to do? First of all, we need rest and recovery. And I'm always reminding people that 
My team might really love me. They are not there to put me to bed at a reasonable hour. They are not there to take my phone out of my hand and say, surely that's enough. They're not there to turn off episode five of that great Netflix series and say, darling, a little bit of sleep would be better for you. Yeah, that's up to me. So I think knowing a little bit about rest and recovery is really helpful. So we need breaks in the day. We need the evening to recover. And recovery is the time when we are not thinking about work. So recovery doesn't have to be passive. Recovery just means you have something to do. That means you don't think about work. That for me used to be rock climbing because it was full on occupied all my attention. Now it could be Wordle, the cryptic crossword. It could be gardening. It doesn't matter. It could be, it's mountain biking is brilliant because if I am going down a single track, I am not thinking about anything else. It's like me and the bike and are we on the track? And that, and so that's recovery. And Interestingly, when we look at sleep patterns, the emotional repair part of sleep only happens after about six hours sleep. So I am not a sleep expert, but I am just reminding us all that getting by on five hours sleep or less, you're not getting into that emotional repair piece. You physically may be getting a little bit of a break and recovery, but the emotional repair that we all need needs a bit longer. So we need that every day. Then we need our weekends and we need our bigger holidays to actually recover. Sometimes, I don't know about you, but sometimes the holidays can be more like a tour of duty than a recovery. So it's like, how do we build in recovery? What does it look like? I never understood when I worked with teachers that had children that they would say, oh, I come to work for a break. I'm like, oh, that sounds strange. <laughs> now I'm like, oh, I get it. Like I come to work for a different kind of work that's a bit more visible and appreciated compared to this invisible work at home. And I love that you've highlighted for us, Denise, this idea that rest doesn't have to be passive. It can be doing things that we enjoy for pleasure and being deeply present to it. At the weekend, myself and Lucy and our team, one of our team members, Sal, and an old friend of mine, Jill Campbell, did the Spirited Women's Adventure Race here in Wanaka in New Zealand. And my main piece of wisdom was I was the team captain and I chose the short course, which we completed in seven hours because the long course was generally 12 hours for most people. But that was being out on the planet in a beautiful environment, looking down the lake, in the mountains, mountain biking, orienteering, um, kayaking, you know, and being together. And what a beautiful way to recalibrate and to recover as humans and to remember what's important relationships mother nature we're just small part in this big big world and for me a really delightful part of it was at one point looking out over this huge expanse and there are 2,000 women spread out finding clues from different control points and going this is my tribe we're all out here you know so it's finding what works for you that doesn't work for everyone and, and I think, you know, if we go on and think, how else do we keep looking after our well-being? It's remembering that well-being is a multi-dimensional thing. And that includes staying connected to your why, staying connected to your sense of purpose at work. When we get burnt out, we lose that. It's almost like a ratchet. As your cynicism goes up, your connection to your why diminishes. So 
re-establishing a connection to your sense of purpose. And we ask people questions. There's a question I got from a US psychologist that I really love. And it's asking someone, what was something you did in the past week that reminded you why you love doing the work you do? And then if you had a really bad week and that you can't answer that question, what's something you saw a colleague do in the last week that uplifted you or inspired you or reminded you about the value and the contribution that this work makes? Such valuable questions to consider. And what comes to mind for me is once we have some rest, once we allow ourselves just to settle a bit, we can then move towards thinking about these questions and reconnecting with that why and noticing that everyday moment is a magic moment. And that's why we're in education for those magic moments of connection. And when you and I are tired, we're running late and we've had a hard day, it's easier to go, I'm over this. I hate my colleagues. I hate the students. I hate the world. Oh, I hate all their parents as well. I'm out of here. And so it's like, how do we put these questions into the start of our team meetings? How do we put these questions into places at the end of a team meeting? How do we actually embed them in our day so that we are going to trip over reconnecting to our why? Oh, I love that idea of tripping over it, that constant reminder of why am I here? What is going well? And we know that when we are feeling a little bit more buoyant, we can literally see a little bit more. But when we're struggling to keep our head above water, it's hard to see the future or what's coming because you're literally surviving. Coughing and splashing and resent. And often, you know, like I, I think of teachers by and large as being very high in the strength of kindness. Now, sometimes when we've overused our strengths, we can end up going to their shadow side and almost their opposite. And I think for me, as someone who has kindness as a strength, I realize that where I go to when it's been overused is resentment. And when I find myself feeling resentful, it's a really good reminder. This isn't where you want to be, but you're here. You've been overusing kindness. So how about some kindness to you to look after yourself so that you can get back to being the person you want to be. Yes, that is so powerful to think about. So as we're taking rest, we're reconnecting with our why. What are some other things we can consider? Recently, I have actually been reminding myself that if we really want to avoid burnout, we have to keep looking after our own well-being because typically we talk about burnout coming on suddenly, but actually there's always a really long trail. There's stuff we stopped doing, stopped connecting with friends, stopped going out to the movies during the week, stopped going to the gym, stopped having big adventures on the weekend and always being available and ready for work. So literally the protection against burnout is not letting those things fall out. It's making sure you're, you're connected to your why, that there is a place in your life for fun and play. And there's a place in your life for love and connection. If we keep them in, we are more protected. If we come now to some of the kind of hard and fast strategies and tactics, a core one that is helping a lot of people over the last year or two is what we call ruthless prioritization. And that is, we know that resilient people focus on what matters and what they can control. And um, if we think of it as a Venn diagram, the bit in the middle 
the stuff that matters and that we can control is actually very big. So therefore, we've got to prioritize like crazy and, and stick to it. The more things are changing, the more important it is to keep reconnecting and, and reestablishing our priorities. And I'm going to drift sideways into what leaders can do, but managing your own priorities for you as a person is really helpful. But we know that one of the things that is a driver of burnout is a lack of clarity. When there's a lack of clarity, when there's unfairness, when we're not sure of what's going on, all of that puts us at greater risk of burnout. So when as a team, you can prioritize clearly, when a team leader can say, this is where we're going. These are the most important three things. Everything else, leave it aside. You can feel yourself calming immediately. And I, I often say to people, like, if you think, you know, have you ever had the experience of finishing a piece of work and somebody saying, oh, yeah, nah, no, no, we changed our mind. We, we don't need that. How does it feel? Horrible. It's the most horrible feeling. And straight away, I can think of an example where a head of department asked me to get something done overnight for a meeting with the principal and then it wasn't used at all. It wasn't even brought up. When the priority changes, let people know so nobody's wasting their time. People are so grateful. And it kind of runs the defrag program, calms us down and reassures us that we're putting our effort in the right place. And so... Ruthless prioritization is about getting really clear on what is important and what we will say yes to and what we will say no to. And when we can agree that together, it gives you permission and it says, yeah, I'm not going to, you know, cop a load of flack for these priorities because they've been agreed. It also helps negotiate, which kind of brings us to the next bit, which is around set and protect your boundaries. And when you are clear on your priorities and someone asks you to do other stuff, you get to show them your list and say, I've been told these are important and that's what I'm working on. If you want me to do something else, what gets pushed down and how do we change the time frame? Because at the core of us all staying sane is acknowledging that there are 24 hours in the day, eight of those should be for sleep, and another eight should be for our own personal lives and family. Um, we cannot, in a workplace, assume that we can keep telling people to get it done overnight. And just to do more and more and more, I can't tell you how many initiatives are rolling into schools week by week, but I haven't heard any school leader say, oh, we're going to stop this one now. We're going to put that one to the back burner. One of the best things I saw a school do some years back was go, we've taken these initiatives in. How do they map to each other? How does one build the other? And how do we do them without extra work? And go, this piece of work ticks that initiative and that initiative and that initiative. And that's, that is the only piece of work that's required for them. So actually mapping how these initiatives supported each other rather than making more work. And what I'm thinking about as we're having this conversation is as individuals become more buoyant, so now we're all lifting out of the water, we can all see a little bit more, then we have the headspace, we have the energy we have the clarity to have these strategic conversations because it's very hard to put pieces of the puzzle together when everyone's spinning their wheels and feeling like they're spluttering and they can't get anywhere. And nobody's going, it doesn't happen because you're cynical, you're exhausted. Everyone is ducking 
out of the way. You know, it's kind of like that game of who can get their thumb to their forehead when you're asked who's going who's to do this task and everyone looks at the ground and goes, not me, not me. So one of the nicest things I've heard around protecting boundaries, because I know that's really hard for teachers. I know you are all asked to do more and give more. And I know you always want to do more and give more for your students. Shout out to Caroline Black from Christ College for this, because what she says is, rather than thinking about what you're keeping out, which makes you feel selfish, think about what's on the inside. What are you protecting? And typically, you'll be protecting your own well-being, but you'll be protecting your ability to keep going. But you'll also be protecting your family because many of us find we have given our best all day at work and we go home and our family get the dregs or nothing at all. When I think about what I'm protecting and I think I'm protecting my family, I'm a little bit more mama bear, a little bit more tiger, and I don't feel selfish. That is such a beautiful reframe. As soon as you were saying that, I felt that lioness sort of come out to think, hang on, I want to protect this space. This is a really important space because for so many of us, our partners are looking at the laptop thinking, when are you going to give us time? Like, when are you going to put that down? When are you going to stop the emails and be present in your own life? I made a commitment to my partner recently and said, my commitment is less time on my phone. That, that after six o'clock, no list. There is no list. I don't care what it is. No list for homework, for, you know, for home improvements or work. Less time on the phone and more time looking into your eyes. Our eyes are the way that we, like in, in, in Barbara Fredrickson's work on love and emotions, our eyes are the way that a lot of this caring and connection is mediated. And when my beloved partner is trying to get my attention and I'm looking at my laptop or my phone or the food I'm cooking or the bed I'm making, there's no connection happening. And so that's my commitment is how can I protect that connection? And so since you've made that commitment, what have you noticed in yourself? Well, first of all, I've noticed how much happier he is. And the, the amount of love being exchanged has gone up. There's more calm. There's more space for what would I like to do this evening? Not should, must, have to, but what would I like to do? Now, it might not be very exciting. It might be, it might be I'm actually making my way through Donut Economics or less is more or any of my, you know, favorite books, but it's by choice. Yes. And that's what the difference is moving away from that compulsion or that default way of being in the world to that more design deliberate way. And it's interesting that you note this because recently I spent some time at a remote campus for year nine students and they're there for the whole year and they have no phones. There's no phones for the whole year. And it was interesting because I did a student presentation and it took me right back to when I started teaching because as the students rolled in, they were giggling and laughing. And as they're sitting on the floor, they're up against each other, their elbows, and there's someone's braiding someone's hair. And they're just, it felt like that real magic connection, laughter, totally into it. And then I've been in other spaces where students have phones there in a, conference or anything. It's like, wow, this, it feels so different. 
the noise level is much, much quieter. I'm like, oh, it was really beautiful experience to have that rumble of noise and laughter as they were coming into the classroom because I feel like in many spaces we're losing that. And if we come and think about, well, what can we do as teams? So there's so much we can do for ourselves. It just gets much more powerful when we can build collective resilience. So coming back to the pool that we're all in, that water needs to be healthy and we need to be thinking about that. And and I think of collective resilience as it's when the quality of our interactions of the people environment make you feel that someone's got your back, you feel safe, you feel supported, you feel seen and able to go and do your best work. That, that supports your resilience. It's enabling and building. And, you know, if I think about the ways that, how do we build that? Psychological safety is a beautiful framework for building collective resilience. It's that safety, that caring, and that trust. And so I think that's really important. And the other thing that is huge for me at the moment is we need hope for a better future. And that is about connecting to our vision and elbows out, steely determination, keeping going. And things are going to change. We are in a period of change. When that change comes knocking on your door, if you don't know what your vision is, if you don't know how you'd like it to be, you will just have to accept whatever change somebody proposes to you. So I think it's absolutely vitally important for us all as individual educators and as a collective that we spend time thinking about how do we want it to be? Because we're the people who know. You are the experts. You are the people who know what it looks and feels like when education is working for educators and students, because that's where we need to be. And as you're saying this, what comes to my mind is this with the water analogy is the collective resilience can be a pontoon boat. We can eventually, we can all get up on the boat and like, wow, where are we going to go now? Now we're all together. Now we're all buoyant enough. We've got a little bit of freedom and flexibility. Where do we want our boat to go? We are going to be coming into a period of systemic change. Start building your change for you personally. Start building it as a team or a department and then start seeing what you can do as a school. Because when you are the best example of a collectively resilient school where teachers are happy and students are happy, you've got a fighting chance of being the option that gets picked up for change. And even you saying that makes me excited. I think I want to be there. That's a school that I want to go to and I want my children to be there. Got to be the model of it. And we've got to be able to show people it's possible so that it can get taken on board. And it doesn't have to be, you know, massive, complete redesign right now, but we need to, that's what we need to be thinking about. And then asking ourselves, what's the next smallest step I can take to move in that direction, doing it. And that's about, that's how we're hanging on to hope for the future. Denise, you have given us so much to think about. All the water analogies are just right up my alley. I love ocean water swimming. And I'm thinking about the school systems where there's this awful northwesterly and there's waves and it's all chaotic. And then other school systems where the water is calm and you can see every grain of sand and it's clear and it feels like you're in a pool and just how different you have to be in different environments and how we adapt and change. And also, I just want to circle back to that point that you said at the start around for educators that feel like, oh, I'm not crazy. 
you know, educators, once I've done presentations in schools, often come up and say, Meg, since listening to this presentation, I realize that there's nothing wrong with me. I am just tired. And seriously, I spoke to a group of educators at a conference this week and said, the system's broken. Don't cry. The system was built 250 years ago to teach peasant, poor peasant children to sit still and be compliant so they could work in the emerging factories of the industrial north of Europe. Why cry about having to change that system? It's 2023. Let's get together and make something that will work for us all. Let's do it. Denise, to wrap up this incredible and insightful conversation, I'd love to invite you to finish four sentences. Are you up for that? I am. I am inspired by. I'm inspired by Jason Hickel, Paul Tapsell, Kate Rayworth and Roman Krizerich, who are writing the books that are giving me hope for the future, that are making me think that the future is possible, that we can redesign it and get into it. And in particular, I love the idea of seventh generation thinking that we make our ancestors proud when we make a future that is creates a life for our descendants. And we are looking after the next seven generations. That's our responsibility. And I'm really excited by people who are showing me pathways to go and do that. When life feels hard? When life feels hard, get outside. I need to get my feet on the ground and remember that I am a being on a planet. And Vandana Shiva says, you are not Atlas carrying the world on your shoulder. It is good to remember that the planet is carrying you. An underrated skill is? Oh, two. Openness to change. Being a semi-permeable membrane, willing to take in information from other people and places. And then the other one is sitting in the crap, sitting in the uncomfortable when I don't feel hopeful, when I feel like nothing's working. Paying attention and being there and knowing that I will get back to the surface and right now learn from where I am. And I'm looking forward to... I'm looking forward to planting some trees and getting out in the hills over Easter. I'm really excited about being on a mission, build a better future and getting more people on board so that we collectively can design the future that we want, that will look after us and the planet. Thank you so much for sharing so many practical strategies and giving us a real boost of hope for the future, Denise. And thank you for being guest on the School of Wellbeing. My absolute pleasure. It's a delight to work with you. I hope this conversation with Denise has helped you to identify what it is and who it is that keeps you buoyant. To learn more about Denise and the wonderful work of the New Zealand Institute of Wellbeing and Resilience, see the show notes for more details. The enrolments for this round of Energy by Design are closing soon. If you're flirting with joining us, this is your sign to take the leap of faith and commit to prioritizing your well-being this term. If you love the show, please share it with anyone you know that would benefit from listening. Or reach out to me on Instagram or LinkedIn and let me know what resonated most with you. To learn more about the ways that I can help you and your school community thrive, visit my website, openmindeducation.com. There you can book me to speak, learn about my game-changing well-being programs, or download my free five-step energy guide. You can find all the links from today's episode at openmindeducation.com forward slash episode 80. Thank you for listening to this episode of the School of Wellbeing and I look forward to sharing more heartfelt conversations with you next week. Until then, take care and take deliberate action.